Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 21. And I want to read uh, just a very brief section of that chapter beginning with verse uh, 10. My father used to tell a story about a man that was tired and feathered and run out of town on a rail. And his comment was, were it not for the glory of the thing, I'd just as soon pass it up. This is a, uh, an account, a narrative account of a uh, time when David was uh, run out of town on a rail. But uh, believe it or not, there was great glory attached to it. Now, let's begin reading with verse 10. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Aki said to his servants, look at the man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this man here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this, must this man come into my house? And so David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. David traveled uh, south from Nob the place of that uh, terrible massacre, made his way across the Judean hills and down the valley of Elah, where he had uh, faced Goliath in single combat. Then he uh, moved another 10 or 12 miles down the valley to the city of Gath, which put him in uh, Philistine territory, enemy-occupied territory. Gath was one of the uh, five great city-states of uh, Philistia. Uh, it was the place from which Goliath and the armies that uh, Saul encountered in the Valley of Elah were uh, sent out. I don't know what possessed David to, uh, to flee to Gath. It would be like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. He was fleeing from Saul, who was in, in hot pursuit, but he was putting himself in the hands of the enemy. And uh, perhaps David thought that uh, he wouldn't be recognized. A number of years had passed and he'd grown into manhood. Or maybe he disguised himself in some way, wore a false nose and glasses. And... But uh, he was recognized immediately. And a report was sent to Achish, the uh, king of that uh, city-state. And they reminded him of, of the song that apparently was current. The way they, they put the uh, statement they sing suggests that it was still a popular tune. That even in Philistia they were singing, Saul has uh, slain his thousand, David his ten thousands. And you have to realize that the ten, that the ten thousand slain were ten thousand Philistines. So David's life was in, uh, was in jeopardy. He was in deep trouble. Furthermore, they said... Uh, He's the king of the land, which is an interesting uh, statement. He was not the king, Saul was, but he may have been de facto king because Saul was insane and un 
very unstable and incapable of ruling. And I think for all practical purposes, David was the one to whom the court turned during this, uh, during this time, which simply heightened uh, Paul's je- uh, Saul's jealousy and hatred of, of David. So here is the uh, king of Israel, or at least the next king of Israel, in the hands of uh, the Philistines. And David uh, panicked. Actually, David's panic had begun several days before when Jonathan had reported to him that he was, uh, that Saul had missed him at the uh, that great uh, festival to which David was invited. David said to Jonathan, I, I am this day just one step away from death, at one foot in the grave, we would say today. But David had forgotten that uh, he'd been divinely elected, secretly anointed that he was immortal until his work was done, that uh, Saul nor the Philistines, uh, neither one could touch him at this time until he had been crowned king, but he, he forgot God's word and he began to scheme and connive on his, uh, on his own, went down to Nob, told that dreadful lie that resulted in the death of the priests and their families, then uh, barely escaped from Nob with uh, Saul on his heels, went to Philistia and put together this uh, other defense, this uh, device, deceitful device that he employed in, in Gath. Feigned madness, scribbled on the walls of the uh, gate, is the way some of the translations puts it. One of the very early, in fact, the earliest of translations, Greek translation, says that he hammered with his fist on the walls. Uh, that's their translation of a very strange word that's translated, placed marks on the wall. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he had a spray can out painting diagrams on the gate, letting the saliva run down his uh, beard, frothing it at the mouth, feigning uh, madness. And uh, he was seized by the Philistines. Uh, We know that from the title of Psalm uh, 56. They seized him, jailed him, imprisoned him, and then brought him to Achish, the uh, king of Gath. David continued to feign madness, and Keith said, "I a bit of humor here. Do I have enough? Don't I have enough madmen around me that you bring more?" And and uh, he drove him away. Psalm 34, the title says that he was he was driven out of Gath. David went away utterly whipped, humiliated, embarrassed to tears, mortified, appalled at his behavior slunk off to a cave, the cave of Adullam, about three and a half miles from Bethlehem, his hometown, back in Saul's territory, but at least a place of temporary refuge. In fact, Adullam means refuge, probably was named after the fact. And it was there in that dark, cold cave in, in his solitude that David penned the two psalms that we know as Psalm 34 and 56, which, which we'll take a look at over the next two weeks. I don't want to look at Psalm 34 this week except to, just to call, you, to call your attention to one line in that psalm. David describes himself as humiliated. He says, this poor, poor man, is the way the NIV translates it. But the word means humiliated. This humiliated man cried out and the Lord heard him. He describes himself as broken in spirit. He was broken hearted. Just embarrassed. Embarrassed to tears. He had gone to Gath with some of his uh, sturdy, 
strong friends and just made an ass of himself, just made an utter fool. And uh, now he, he just felt the shame of all of that. And we can identify. There are those times that uh, we play the fool. We do some mortifying thing, some reaction to a relational failure, some display, some ugly display of emotion. And, and uh, we're, we're exposed. Our seams are opened and People see the unconverted parts of our hearts, all the crass, ugly, unacceptable things in us, the gross sins that uh, we want to keep undercover. We don't want anyone to see. and we, our, our faces flame in embarrassment, and we just, we just slink off like David to, uh, to our cave, our place of concealment, where we can hide ourselves, uh, hide ourselves away. That was, that was David. We ask ourselves, Why? And why does God permit us to go through these humiliating experiences? When people see all the, 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 all the stuff inside that we want to keep concealed, the things that we don't want others to know about, why? Why does he do that? Well, there's a reason. Uh, these humiliations are essential from time to time. Because they, they show us two things, two essential things. One, they reveal to us how bad we really are. And secondly, they let us know how good God is. I'm convinced that apart from these, uh, these great humiliations of life, we would never come to fully appreciate or understand the wonderful grace of God and his loving kindness to us. And furthermore, we would never see how, how sinful we really are. We would not understand the profound nature of our depravity and the depths to which we can go in our, uh, in our sin. Um, it may surprise you to know that God is not primarily concerned about ridding you of all your sin. I know we're told from the very beginning that our Lord came to save us from sin. And that's true. And he will ultimately do that. But he has his reasons for leaving behind what I call un unconquered Canaanites. Uh, areas of our life that uh, occasionally crop up. Old sins that uh, rear their ugly heads. You know, these, these krakens within. These monsters that come out of us and, and uh, we can't suppress. They humiliate us time and time again. Just about the time we think we've got them under control. We have them on a leash. Some uh, stressful situation brings, brings them out again, and we see ourselves for what we really are. Or some new sin emerges, one that we, that we didn't uh, realize was there. Uh, that wise old possum, Pogo, says, uh, we have sins that we haven't even used yet. And uh, some stressful moment comes along and all of a sudden we see something about ourselves that we wasn't that we, that we weren't aware of. David describes these things as secret sins, hidden things, things that are hidden from us, but not hidden from God. And for some reason he lets us uh, expose ourselves. Uh, our sinfulness is a matter of creed. Uh, we will go to the wall for the fact of our, of our depravity. Uh, that's one of those uh, elements of our theology that all of us agree upon. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Uh, if you were led to Christ through uh, the four laws, you know that the second of those laws reads, we are sinful and separated from God. And long ago we acceded to that, to that fact. We are dust and ashes and full of sin, Martin Luther says. And, and we, uh, we agree. You uh, good Presbyterians will remember the uh, prayer of, uh, of contrition and humility in the Book of Common Prayer. How many times have we prayed this prayer? Almighty and most merciful Father, we have, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone the things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. Have mercy on us, miserable sinners. We rattle off that uh, prayer every uh, Sunday. It's part of our liturgy, part of our creed. We believe it. Or if you don't have that background, you have the, uh, the doctrinal statement that we have here in Cole Community Church. Man was originally contrit- uh, created in the image and likeness of God. He fell through disobedience, incurring both spiritual and physical death. All men are born with a sinful nature, and we are separated from the life of God. And then we sing Isaac Watts' wonderful old hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? We sing those words, uh, but I'm afraid we don't really mean it. I know I don't. They're just words. They're God words. We, it's parrot talk. Even what we say on our knees about our sin is not to really believe. We really do not know how profoundly sinful we are and how ugly and unacceptable and despicable we are. And we do not know what we're capable uh, of doing. We talk about original sin, the fact that we are sinful in our, in our origins, that we are conceived in sin, not that conception itself is sinful, it is not, but that product of that conception is a little being with a bent towards sin, a little twisted person who uh, comes into life like a, like a baseball with a spin on it and it always breaks down and away, away from God. We, we use those words. We believe in original sin. We believe in total depravity. The idea that we are depraved in all our being, as I've put it before, if sin were red, would be tinted some shade of red all over. It, it, sin touches us in the totality of our existence and our being, mind, emotions, will, body, soul, spirit. Uh, we're, we're depraved and deprived of the life of God. We know that. We say these things. But uh, speaking for myself, I'm inclined to see myself as something of an exception, uh, leaning more toward righteousness. And uh, I, like everyone else, needs to discover the depths of my depravity and the evil of which I am capable. And so God lets us discover our evil. He just takes his hands off of us and he lets us manifest ourselves and the profound evil of which we're capable, the, the, the wickedness, the horrifying things that we do and, and say express themselves. And as the old philosophers would say, we get to know ourselves. If the key to... To life is knowing yourself, then uh, sin is one way we get to know ourselves. Uh, years ago, I met the most interesting character. His name was Ralph. He was a 
a caretaker in a backcountry ranch way back on the Salmon River. The only way to get in there was is to fly in or to take a jet boat up the river. And I had an opportunity to spend a few days with uh, Ralph. And uh, one day we were uh, just talking, sitting by the Salmon River, chatting, and and uh, I found out he was illiterate. He'd only finished the first or second grade, couldn't read, uh, had no radio, uh, no telephone. Uh, he didn't have any, any crafts. And I was asking him, well, what, do you, what do you do during the winter months when there's no one around? He's there all by himself for months and months and months. He says, well, I get to know myself real well. And I thought... Uh, Oh, that, 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 that were true of me. That in some way I would get to know myself as, as, as God knows me. But see, what, it, what we don't realize is that when we get to know ourselves, we get to see a lot of ugly stuff that, that we're just not, uh, not aware of. God lets us experience the depths of our depravity so we can see the miserable stuff of which we're made. And that's why we embarrass ourselves. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, as you know, in, in, his, in his work, The Gulag Archipelago, talks about uh, his feeling of injustice about being imprisoned when he had done nothing wrong. He was not guilty of the crimes of which he was charged. But it occurred to him one day that though he was not guilty of those, those crimes, he had committed other crimes that were far worse, far more heinous that, uh, that uh, uh, justified his imprisonment. And he... He said, it was disclosed to me while I lay there on rotting prison straw that the line separating good from evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between parties either, but right through every human heart, through all human hearts. We like to classify the world into the good guys and the bad guys, and we kind of lean toward the good guys. We were the white hats. Solzhenitsyn says, you cannot divide the human race that way. The line of evil runs right through every human heart. That's why we have to get worse before we can get better. That's why we have to see ourselves for what we really are. G.K. Chesterton's uh, detective, Father Brown, said, no man is really any good until he knows how bad he is. I love that phrase. I don't like the meaning of it, the significance of it, but he puts it well. No man is really any good until he knows how bad he is, till he's realized exactly how much right he has to all his snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away, till he's got rid of all the dirty self-deception of talking about low types and deficient people, till he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees, till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. And that's what our shame does for us. It shows us how, how ugly, how awful we really are. We have to come to see that in one way or another, hidden or, or revealed, we're, we're no good. We're sinful. Uh, sinner is not just a cliche that we preachers contrive to shake people up or shake you down on Sunday mornings. It, it, it's a reality. It's a it's a real thing. It's something we have to we have to reckon with. There is something in our being that makes us desire wrong, causes us to do it, 
or when we try not to do it, makes it impossible for us to not think about doing it. You see, that's what Paul had to discover. He thought of himself when it, you know, when it came to righteousness. Paul thought that he, he, he hit the long ball. He was doing okay. He was leaning toward righteousness until he came to the last of the Ten Commandments and it came home to him that it was, that it was just as wrong to want evil as to actually do evil. And that's what we have to have to discover. Uh, John has an interesting uh, comment on our condition. I, I, I've read this many times without really thinking about what John was saying, so referring to Jesus and his, the fact that people were believing on him, but their belief was very shallow, transient. John says, and, and this is the way most of the translations put it, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in men. What that, that word entrust actually means is trust. In other words, he didn't believe in people. He didn't trust anyone because he knew what was in them. See? And that's the place to which we have to come. We're inclined to trust ourselves and we're inclined to trust others. And we need to realize that that, that trust is ill-advised that we do not know what other people are capable of doing. They are capable of the, of the most awful sins, and so are we. There's no end to the extent to which we will go to get our way in, in, in certain situations. David's a case in point. Here, here's a man who's greatly loved of God and who by his own admission, greatly loved God. And one day he happened to spy this uh, beautiful young lady and transient passion went through his mind, just, just a lust, just a thought. And you know the rest of the story. We'll be getting to that in a few weeks and we'll talk about that terrible tale. And led David into adultery and then he killed his best friend and then he was guilty of mass murder. He, he ma massacred an entire city and uh, lied to keep himself out of trouble. And you know, David never b would have believed that he was capable of, of, that, of, that, of those awful acts until he actually did them. And then he saw the, he saw the limits, the extent to which, which he would go. See? And that, that's what we've got to understand about ourselves. I don't any longer say to people, I think my motives are all right because I'm convinced that my motives are, are bad. They're rotten to the core. All I can do is say... Yeah, my motives are, are impure, you know, and God, you've got to sort through them. Even Paul said, I don't judge myself. It's the Lord who judges. He was being criticized by some people in Corinth. And he said, I don't know if what you're saying is true or not. I don't even know my motivations. I'm just going to leave that up to God. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. The word means crafty. The, the, the heart is deceitful above all things, and... An incurably sick, that's the word that Jeremiah uses, incurably sick. It's the word that's translated desperately wicked, but it means terminal, incurably sick. That's the way Jeremiah looks at our hearts. You see, we have a hard time with that. We say, well, yeah, I know there are people like that in the world, but I don't think that's true of me. And then what God does is take his hands off of us and let us act in ways that, that manifest what we're we're all about, and then there's uh, Peter, dear old Peter. 
the Lord said, Peter, you're going to betray me. Peter said, not me. Not me. I'd go to the wall for you. And in a matter of hours, he had he, he displayed his unfaithfulness. It's very important that we understand how bad we really are. And that's what these moments of humiliation, these times when we embarrass ourselves to tears, they, and unfortunately others get to see it as well, but we get to see how awful, how bad we really are. See, now on the one hand, we were created in the image of God, which means that we're more like God than any other creation. He is our closest relative, not apes. He is our closest relative. And yet we've fallen. And what we have to understand is how far we have fallen. And the only way I know to experience that fallenness is, is for God to permit us to replicate Adam's fall. We fall flat on our faces. We humiliate ourselves. We embarrass ourselves. And we slink off into our cave like David did. And then we begin to reflect upon how awful we, we really are. John Newton understood. Newton, you know, was a slave trader. Captured uh, black men and women in Africa and put them on slave ships. And many of them died on the way over. Terrible, terrible inhumane treatment. We know that about his pre-conversion life, but are you aware of the fact that he continued to, to trade slaves long after he became a Christian? Justified it on the basis of Scripture, that they were less than human. Until one day it came home to him, the, the awfulness of his sin. And uh, he sat down and wrote a poem, one, one of my favorite poems. I ask the Lord that I may grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I thought that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's transforming power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of that, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and bade the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Nay, more with his hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue this worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from sin and self to set thee free and cross thy schemes of earthly joy that thou might find thy all in me. Which leads us to the second point. These failures teach us how bad we are, but they also teach us how good God is. Because it's our sinfulness that enables us to see as we have never seen before the grace of God. See, God reveals not to shame us. That's, that's Satan's part. He wants to fill us with guilt over our sin. God reveals not to shame. He reveals to heal. heal. He lets us fail. But he assures us that though we're guilty, vile, and helpless, we're deeply loved by God. 
At the moment of our exposure and brokenness, our shame can be driven underground or we can be touched at the heart level by God's amazing grace and know that despite our failure, we're fully accepted. God loves us even though we're lost in sin and confusion. I mentioned before Mother Basilea Schlink, who is the head of a uh, group of Protestant nuns. She's the mother superior of this group. They, they reside in Germany. She wrote a little book entitled The Key to the Heart of God. And uh, she states at the very outset that the key to the heart of God is humility and contrition. So when we come to the end of ourselves, when we see what we're really capable of, when we're humbled, then we begin to understand something of God's kindness and His grace. Those who cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, are the ones who go home justified. They're the ones who go home whole. They're the ones who, 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 go, who can go home knowing that they've been healed, knowing that they're loved and accepted, that their sins have been, have been put away. See, God has never yet despised a broken and, and contrite heart. We utter our confession. And God interrupts us with an, with an outpouring of his, of his love. We hardly get it out of our mouths before we're assured that, that we're forgiven. See, it's God's love in the face of our sin that assures us of his love for us. And it draws us toward his mercy and, and his, his grace. We can forgive ourselves and we can forget ourselves because of the healing experience of his forgiveness. That's the wonderful thing about God's love. Our sin does not neutralize it. God is not pushed away by our disobedience, regardless of what we've done. No matter how much we may have humiliated ourselves, no, no matter how bad we may look in the face of others, God understands. His understanding is infinite, David said. He sees right into the depths of our heart. He's known all along the awfulness of, of our existence. He knows what we're like, but he continues to love and and forgive. It's when we see how bad we are that we see how good he is. I have a couple of psalms I'd like for you to look at. We're going to look at these in more t detail later, but would you turn to Psalm 32? These are psalms that, that, that David wrote as, as a result of his uh, sin of adultery. And I want to take more time uh, when we actually consider that, uh, that incident. To, uh, to look at these psalms. I simply want to read a few verses in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. In other words, it's, it's when... We stop covering up our sins that we're happy, that we're blessed. This is a beatitude. That word blessed means happiness. Happiness is the ones whose sins have found them out, whose sins have been disclosed and discovered, and we don't try to cover them. We just bring our humiliations out before God and hold them, hold them up before, the, before his healing, uh, healing grace. Happiness knows that found out, but we've been forgiven. 
And then David goes on to talk about his misery when he covered up his sin. He says, my bones ached and I, I just uh, I had no strength. I had no energy. Anxiety and stress had just uh, enervated him. Then, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. Listen to this. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Do you understand how David had compounded his guilt through his act of adultery and murder and and mass murder and and deceit and all the convolutions of of, of, of sin in, in his life, his attempts to try to get away from it. And yet, uh, David said, when I confess my transgression to the Lord, you forgave. And then he instructs us, therefore, therefore, let everyone who is godly. Now, that word godly is uh, the word that's often translated saints in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean those that have a special piety. It's a reference to those who love God. It's that word, it's based on that word we talked about last week, loving kindness. It's those that, uh, that respond to God's loving kindness with commitment and loyalty and, and love for Him. Therefore, let everyone who loves God pray to you in a time of finding. Literally, that's the way the text reads, in a time of finding. In other words, when our sin finds us out. When, when God ferrets out all the the ugliness of our hearts, and we see him blazing in front of our eyes, the horror of who we are and, and what we've done. And, and we respond with humility and contrition. God pours out his love and, and forgiveness on us. Now uh, uh, turn to Psalm 51. David exhausts the Hebrew vocabulary of words for sin. He uses every word that we know about uh, that's a synonym for sin. Uh, transgression, iniquity, sin, evil. I've done it all, David says. Against you, verse 5, you only have I sinned. Against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against the nation, against the unborn child. Uh, there's no end of people against whom David had sinned, but he puts his finger squarely on the issue. That sin is sin against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're right when you speak and justified when you judge. And God looks at us and says, there, there is nothing of any social, uh, socially redeeming value in you. Nothing to be salvaged. He's right. He's right. We are rotten to the core. We are despicable. We're, we're ugly all the way to the bone. There's nothing about us that's salvageable. That's why the Lord had, had to take that hard line with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a self-righteous man. felt that uh, he was doing well when it came to, to his uh, reaction to the law, his attitude toward it. And Jesus said, look, nothing in you worth salvaging. You've got to start all over again. You have to be born again. There's no other way. See, no other way. And this is what David is is saying here in verse 7, having poured out his heart to God and, and uh, confessed his sin, he says, now cleanse me. Actually, you will cleanse me. It's not a command. It's, it's, it's rather a, a statement. You, you will. You will. Descend me is really the word. With hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That is a, a spirit freed from the domination of, of sin. Then, he says, then, I'll teach transgressors your ways. See, so we understand God's grace and His mercy and His loving kindness that and we really get a picture of God's ways. That's, that's the way he is. See, David's ways were hard. Nathan came to him with that trumped-up story about the little lamb that the man stole. David says, that man deserves to die. David's ways were hard and harsh. God's ways are, are not David's ways. He responds to our sin when we, when we face into that sin and judge it. And, and, and we claim his forgiveness, then he forgives. And once we've experienced that forgiveness, we can teach others of God's, uh, God's ways. Now, this is not to say that sin is good. It's not. F.B. Meyer said, Sin is dark and dangerous and damnable. But listen to this. It cannot staunch the love of God. It cannot change the fact of a love that is not of yesterday, but dates from eternity itself. See, God uses our sin to awaken our need for grace. Sin softens us and makes us much more susceptible to his shaping. When we fall, we've fallen into his hands. So rather than mourn our humiliation, whenever these moments come that, uh, that we've embarrassed ourselves, rather than dwell on that, uh, on that embarrassment, as George MacDonald says, we must forget our own paltry self with its well-earned disgrace. And lift up our eyes to the glory which alone will quicken us. That's why I said David received glory as a result of being ridden out of town on a rail. What David learned through that humiliating experience was more of the grace of God. He learned how bad he was, but he learned how good God is. I just learned this last week why Puritan women... Wore aprons. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but they all wear aprons. And they have two pockets in the aprons. Pocket over here on this side and a pocket on this side. And in the right-hand pocket, they carried a slip of paper that had on it uh, Luther's famous quote, I am dust and ashes and full of sin. That's reality. I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And in the other pocket was a little piece of paper that read, I am the apple of his eye. And you see, that's, that's true of us. We are dust and ashes and full of sin. There is no end to the horrible things we will do to ourselves and to others. But we are the apple of his, of his eye. We are loved even in the face of our sin. And when we come to him... In humility and contrition, we are forgiven. We learn not only how bad we are, but we learn how wonderfully good, how gracious, how kind he is. Now let's pray. And let's prepare our hearts for this time around the Lord's table. When we remember why it is possible for God to forgive us. This is Aslan's how. This is how he can be merciful and kind. He does not respond 
to our sin and forgiveness simply because he is soft or because he is merciful or kind. He can do so because he himself is, has taken upon himself the burden of our sin. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He took them away. So they no longer need to plague us. We can be forgiven. And we want to enter into this time around the table with that, with that memory. Let's uh, remember his, uh, his death and all that it signifies to us. Lord, we always come to this table with our minds cluttered up with uh, all sorts of preoccupations. And we would ask that you would clear away those thoughts and that you would center our thinking on, on that, that great event 1,900 years ago when once for all you took away the sin of the world. You became that, that lamb that was offered up for us. This is the greatest memory that we can have and one that continues to free us from fear of the future. A terrible sense of frustration with our own failures. We would ask that, uh, that we would understand not only how bad we are and how much in need of forgiveness we are, but that we would, would come to sense afresh this morning how wonderful is your love, how kind you are, how gracious you are to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.